afternoon to you all. It's great to see you here. Um, my name is Ike Unger. I'm the lead pastor here at Deer Run Church, and it is an honor for me to be able to speak to us this morning. We're starting a new series today called Odds and Ends. Did I get that right? Yes. Um, and so we're, we're going to, in this series, tackle some of those uh, different topics that may not fit into a, a sermon series necessarily. Uh, so we're just kind of grabbing in and, and taking, you know, certain topics that we don't talk about a lot. For example, next Sunday we're going to talk about uh, stewardship and we're going to look a little bit at being good stewards of our finances, um, tithing and those kind of things. And then also we're going to at the same time also talk about being good stewards of our land and touch on climate change because it's definitely a conversation that needs to be had and, and one that the uh, church church is uh, you know connected to and has a responsibility with and and then following that pastor peter's going to be speaking to us on the next week i'm locking it in now it's going to be on science and faith and how those two work together because again wherever you are you hear about this you know and it's almost always seen as the two are at war with each other and then the last sunday we're going to wrap up by looking at um singles and you know many of you in this room aren't singles but boy you have uh, uh, people in your life who are still single, and the question really is, 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 is it God's intention for every single person to marry? Um, and very often that seems to be kind of the pressure that we put on people. And so we're going to look at that topic because the Bible has a few things to say to that. And again, these aren't maybe topics that would fit into a, a, a full theme of themselves or a series of themselves, but we want to um, take some time to just address these, these, uh, these conversations and these topics. Today I want to talk about something that is not easy to preach on, uh, not easy to really address, and there's a, there's a few reasons for that. One, obviously, is the sensitivity of this conversation. Uh, the other one is that not everyone agrees on even the definition of it. And so I want to talk to us today about spiritual abuse or church abuse. And this is a conversation that I feel needs to be addressed and I've, I've been wanting to address for some time. Um, as a pastor here at this church for 21 years, uh, over time, I have heard many, many people talk about how they are struggling with recovering from different forms of abuse, um, and one of the ones that often comes up is spiritual abuse or, or church abuse. To some degree, it's difficult to define what spiritual abuse is because the divide be between sacred and secular is not always that clear. Uh, I think we've done a good job of recognizing that your job at work or your work or your, your schooling and those things don't, shouldn't just be put into the secular camp and, and treated as secular because there's an element of spirituality to those things. And so when someone physically abuses someone, we can't just say, well, it was only physical abuse because there's an element of spirituality to that because when someone experiences physical abuse, it has an impact on their spirituality. And so you can't just say, well, it's only physical abuse. And so this is why, for many people, they struggle a little bit with recognizing what exactly and how do we define what spiritual abuse is or what church abuse is. I want to give you one story, and I could tell many, but I want to give you one story just to kind of help us identify what I mean by spiritual abuse. I think the most horrific example of spiritual abuse I ever heard of was from a young woman who shared with me about how when she was a young girl, her dad would sexually abuse her. And then when he was done sexually abusing her, he would remind her that the Bible says that children are to obey their fathers. And so she had better never tell anybody, because if she told somebody, then God would be angry with her because she had disobeyed the Bible. 
This young lady told me that she grew up thinking that, what her, what her, that disobeying her dad was worse than what her dad was doing to her. And so there's this fear that, folks, is spiritual abuse. When we think about church abuse, one of the most, you know, um, clear example for maybe many of us in this room that we would, we would recognize maybe because of our past or our, 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 our cultural history and those sort of things, not all of you, but some of you, is this fear that if the church excommunicates you, then you are condemned to hell. And I've talked to people who have said that they've had to wrestle with this decision. They gave up jobs, they gave up friends, or they, they stayed in unhealthy relationships or whatever it might be because the church says if you don't do what we're telling you to do, then we will excommunicate you. And once we've excommunicated you, then you are going to be bound to hell forever. That's church abuse. And I just want to set the record straight here in case anyone is not sure on this. You need to know that the church does not have the authority to condemn someone to hell. Jesus is the only judge. Jesus is the only one who has that authority to divide people because he is the only one who died on the cross for our sins. And it is his desire that everyone would be saved and that no one would be lost. And so there's an example of both types of abuse. When we do a study of the church, of church history, we have a long, dark history. Now, at the same time, I need to say we have also a beautiful history. There's many beautiful things that have been done within the church. But when we think about church history, a lot of very inappropriate things have been done. And most likely for all of us here, when we hear the word church abuse, we immediately think about orphanages. We think about schools. We think of homes. We think of the horrendous things that were done to the First Nations people and, and many others around the world who experienced such tremendous abuse by the church in the name of Christ. And so church abuse and spiritual abuse are something that many of us have probably felt or experienced or are aware of at least in some way. So I want to give us a definition of spiritual abuse because I think it's important for us to just sort of have a working definition. Um, and so here's a definition from Churches Child Protection Adversary Services, CCPAS. Um, this is a guy that they utilize, and here, here's what their definition is. Spiritual abuse is coercion and control of one individual by another in a spiritual context. The target experiences Spiritual abuse as a deeply emotional personal attack. This abuse may cause, um, this abuse may include manipulation and exploitation, enforced accountability, censorship of decision making, requirements for secrecy and silence, pressure to conform, misuse of scripture or the pulpit to control behavior, requirements of disobedience to the abuser, the suggestion that the abuser has a divine position, isolation from others, especially those external to the abusive context. And in that statement, in that definition, is a really complex you know, description of all the different ways in which abuse can happen on a spiritual, form, on a spiritual level. A very rough summary of that statement is, uh, would be just basically saying that spiritual abuse is using spiritual means to justify ethical or moral wrongs. 
It's when someone uses spiritual means to justify their behavior or to do, get people to do things that are immoral or unethical and it is a, they use spirituality as a way of enforcing that on people. So the question we have to wrestle with this, this, this morning then is, how does this happen? How do we get to a place where people begin to abuse others in a spiritual way instead of using God's word to redeem and to heal, it is now used to destroy and condemn? How do we get a group of people like a church that would literally begin to see themselves you know, as, as, a, as an opportunity to uh, destroy other people's lives? I believe that whenever a person or a group of people begin to see themselves as the moral authority over others, spiritual abuse is bound to happen. The role of the church is not to be the moral authority over individuals. The role of the church is to point people to Jesus. That is the role of the church. When a person sees themselves as the moral authority over others, they often begin to overlook their own failures. They become self-righteous. This begins this ugly cycle of justifying their own actions while being more and more demanding of others. When the church begins to see itself as the, the moral authority over others and doesn't recognize its own sin and its own failures, it begins to expect and demand from others that which it was never meant to, to do. And one of the things that happened, there are many things that happen where we begin to see minor issues turned into major issues. Where something that really isn't that big of a deal, but somehow that is now the key focus. And, and suddenly a minor issue is made into a major issue. Private sins that should be dealt with in a very delicate and sensitive way are now exposed in public in order to humiliate and to rebuke the person. There is less and less focus on redemption and healing and a greater emphasis and focus on condemning. And often it is the most vulnerable, those who already, already have a sense of inferiority that would you know, be seen as inferior that suffer the most. The poor, children, women, just to name a few. Those sins that are visible, that everyone can see, those sins are highly condemned. While secret or more normalized sins, they're often you know, excused, left alone, or just minimized. So spiritual abuse and church abuse are extremely damaging to a person because they are so personal. This isn't necessarily something that is happening outside of their body. This is something that is very, very personal. And because for most people their spirituality is a, is a very important part of their being and a part of their life, suddenly when they are experiencing abuse in this area, it is extremely painful and very, very personal for them. It's often done by people who they trust. People who, are the, you know, who they are close to. People who they depend on. And to have these same people now shame them, accuse them, reject them is an extremely painful experience for the church and for people who experience this. So I want us to just recognize today that the church is the bride of Christ. We are God, Christ's body. We are the body of Christ. And so in order for us to really address this topic, we then have to pause for a moment and say, okay, so what do we do? How do we live? Because if we are the bride of Christ, if we are the body of Christ, therefore we must look to him as an example of how we are to live. So I want us to learn 
from Christ this morning. What was it that Jesus did? This topic is, is huge. And so in order for us to even do any kind of justice to addressing how this happens, why it happened, and how we as a church can make sure that it never happens within our walls, we need to make sure that our focus is on treating people the way Jesus treated people. And here's a key thing I want you to see. Jesus invited the uninvited. Jesus invited the uninvited. Everywhere you look, you see that Jesus was inviting people into his life that other people had rejected. Throughout scripture, we see that time and time again. In Luke chapter 7, Luke, the author, tells us this, this interesting story of when Jesus encounters while he is invited into the Pharisee's house. And, and if you don't know who the Pharisees are, the Pharisees were these very pious, these very religious, these very devout, outwardly religious-focused people. They had some 613 laws that they prided themselves on keeping. And they, the, the number one priority of every Pharisee was to keep themselves pure. They wanted to make sure that everybody recognized that they would not be kept from doing the, you know, the um, different ceremonies that they were required to do at the, at the um, temple. And so they would focus on keeping themselves pure in every way. And so the Pharisees prided themselves on this. The best way that they could keep themselves pure was to keep themselves away from sinners. So let's look at it. If you have your YouVersion app, you can follow along there as well. Luke chapter 7, verses 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now Jesus was invited to this dinner, this party, which is it's important for us to recognize because these parties were very different than what we would consider you know, today. To receive an invitation meant that you were given a seat of honor at the table, that you were given a seat of honor at, you know, at the meal and in the place. But that didn't mean that other people who hadn't been invited couldn't attend. So in other words, there would be people at, you know, in that place who hadn't received an invitation, but they would still come in. So passerbys may stop to listen to the discussions. These parties were also time for the Pharisees to show off to everyone how well they had obeyed all those laws and how they had kept themselves pure and how they'd kept the laws. And this was a time for them to sort of brag among one another as to how good they had been at keeping these laws. The meal took place in an open room. They sat in a circle on the floor. They weren't behind tables, and so people had access to these individuals. In a day and age when there wasn't internet and there wasn't television, often other people would stop in and listen to hear the latest gossip, to listen to conversations around politics or theology or whatever it might be. And so people made their way in. This was a place to kind of catch up on social trends. And so other individuals would come into these places. But Jesus was invited as a guest to the table. And we learn that the, the Pharisee's name is Simon, who was hosting this event, this party. He would have wanted to make an impression. The other thing you need to understand is that this time, most people didn't really understand who Jesus was. They recognized that Jesus was a teacher, that, that he was able to perform miracles, and they saw him as a prophet, but they weren't sure, is he really a prophet? Is he who he says he is? And so here was a moment for these, these Pharisees to kind of question him and to, to get to know Jesus more, and then something in, you know, incredible happens, something that interrupts the entire event. Verse 37. 
a woman in that town who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came to him with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now this is a, this is a, you know, lived a sinful life is a nice way of saying the town prostitute. Now think about that for a moment. She walked into a place filled with people who would automatically reject her. She walked into a place filled with people who would have done everything in their power to avoid someone like her. She was unclean. She was unworthy. She was impure. She was rejected. She was uninvited. And clearly everyone in the room immediately knew who she was and what kind of work she did. How she knew Jesus, no one really knows. And most scholars believe that maybe she heard Jesus preach the day before. And so maybe she had heard Jesus preach and was so moved by his sermon that when she found out that Jesus was there, she was like, I don't care whose party he's at. I don't care where he's at. I must go see him. Verse 38. She goes into the place. She's moved with, by conviction and gratitude, and she risks everything to see Jesus. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. She came up behind Jesus. He would have been sitting on the ground and most likely his feet would have been, you know, behind him. And so she came up behind him and she just begins to weep bitterly. Her tears are falling on his feet and they literally are beginning to wash his feet. And so she's wiping them with her hair, Jesus' feet. And she's, you know, she's kissing his feet and she pours perfume on his feet. All of this is incredibly significant. We don't know what led her to being a prostitute, but here's what we know for sure, that that was not her choice. That there's no way that when she was a little girl, she said, you know, I want to grow up to be the town prostitute. Here's what we know, that here's a woman who is deeply, deeply hurt and burdened, and she comes to the feet of Jesus, and when she's at his feet, she just begins to weep. Her life consisted of people using her for money. She was a commodity that people used for their pleasure and then cast aside. Look at verse 38 again. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. This woman does something here that most women at that time never, ever did. She let out her hair in public. Jewish women didn't do this. They didn't unbind their hair. This was considered extremely inappropriate. She does something else that was as shocking to everyone. She poured perfume on Jesus' feet. Now, you need to understand, oil was readily available and oil was inexpensive, but perfume was extremely expensive. As a matter of fact, it was so expensive that many believe that this perfume cost her a whole year's worth of wages. This was expensive perfume, and here she is pouring this expensive perfume on his feet. In her act of worship and repentance, she pours this on his feet. Now usually, um, you know, when people went 
to parties, the host would anoint their head with oil just to kind of, you know, give them a, a blessing, but also, you know, just the odor and things like that. But feet, feet were a completely different matter. As a matter of fact, the host would not touch your feet. That was left to a slave. Only a slave would touch your feet. Slaves who were the, the nobodies in the room, they were the ones who would, you know, touch your feet and wash your feet. And here this woman in this incredible act of humility washes Jesus' feet with her own tears, kisses them, and pours perfume on them. This is where, and going into verse 39, this is where the story takes an interesting turn. I would say it this way, that this is where the story, where the, in the story where the church becomes part of the story. Up to now, the focus has been on the woman, her lifestyle, who she was, and, and this inappropriate intrusion. But in verse 39, the Pharisees, you know, are obviously watching, but the Pharisee who invited Jesus begins to think to himself. Look at what it says in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he's either speaking to himself quietly or he's thinking to himself, if this man, Jesus, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now this Pharisee is thinking this to himself now that he makes two assumptions that are incorrect. One of those assumptions is that Jesus isn't who he claims to be. And the second assumption is that Jesus cannot read his thoughts. Both of them turn out to be wrong. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to, something to tell you. He replies, tell me, teacher. Now, when you, when you study that, basically he's, he's not really interested. He's like, yeah, 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 get on with it. What do you want to say? Verse 41, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarius and the other 50. Neither of them had money to repay him, so he forgave the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the biggest, bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus answered. Now what Simon doesn't recognize is that this is a setup. Jesus is setting him up. Jesus clearly knew who the woman was, what her lifestyle was, and Jesus also knew what every Pharisee in the room was thinking and what their attitude towards this woman was. And now in verse 44, we see the application. He then turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? And I want us just to stop there for a moment. Because I want us to feel the, the weight of that question. He looks at Simon. He knows his attitude. He knows his lifestyle. He knows the, the lifestyle of this woman. He knows all the things that she's done, who she is. He knows all about those things. And the question is an interesting one. Do you see the person is ultimately what Jesus is asking. Do you see this woman? In other words, Simon, do you see the person or do you only see the sin? Do you see the person or do you only see the horrible things that they have done? And I think this is a moment where the church has to wrestle with the same question. When we as a church 
see people who have experienced sin and who have lived in sin and, and who maybe are still deep in their sin, do we see the person or do we just see the sin? Jesus saw the person. He saw her and he was inviting her to come to him. Here's something that's really important for us to recognize. Pointing out this woman's sins didn't lead her from her sins. Judging her lifestyle didn't result in a change in lifestyle. Shaming her didn't set her free. Oh, that the church would learn that lesson. That just shaming someone, just judging someone, just pointing out the sins of people does not help the person. What changed her? What made all the difference? It wasn't that Jesus again and again and again told her about all the things that she had done wrong. When Jesus invited her, that is what changed everything about her. This woman knew what she had done wrong. She had been reminded. Her sins had been pointed out to her over and over. People had judged her possibly her whole life. She had been shamed again and again and again. And to Simon's shock, Jesus is about to compare her to him, and he's going to find himself wanting. Look at what he says. Do you see this woman? So he's now comparing her, and I'm sure everyone is now listening. He's comparing her, what she just did, and what he's done. He says, I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins are forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Church, we are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. So I want us to just pause for a moment because we're talking about spiritual abuse and church abuse. And I want us to just pause for a moment and, and ask ourselves this question. When we think of people who have committed sins and when we think of people who are still living in sin, do we see them as the body of Christ? Do we see, do we look at them as though we are the body of Christ? Or are we over here looking at them as if we are Pharisees? When it comes to people who live in failure, when it comes to people who live in sin, we are to be the body of Christ to them. Jesus' whole ministry was about inviting people over and over, people who had been rejected by society. Remember the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years? She wasn't allowed in the temple. She was considered impure. She was considered unclean. She was rejected. She was not invited. People didn't associate with her because if they associated with her, then they themselves would be impure. And so this woman was not allowed anywhere. And yet finally she touches the coat of Jesus. And she's instantly healed. Jesus doesn't let the matter go. He could have just slipped away and she could have you know, vanished in the crowd. But he, he points her out. He finds her. And when he finds her, he gives her her identity. He calls her a daughter. Jesus' whole ministry was about inviting people others had rejected. So as a church, as the bride of Christ, we too must live in such a way that we are inviting those whom others have rejected.
those of you in the room, maybe you today, you feel rejected and you feel uninvited. I want to speak to you for a moment. Maybe you found yourself at a place in your life where you, you doubted God. Maybe you're there today. You question him. You're just not sure what to do with who he is and, and what scripture claims about him. You don't know what to do with the doubts and the questions. And you find yourself here today. Extremely brave. You come into this place because you, you want to know. You want answers. I just say to you today that you are invited. Jesus invites you. He's not afraid of your questions. He's not afraid of your doubts. He's not worried about the things that you can't sort out in your head. You are invited. Maybe you've been hurt by God. And in a church context, we almost struggle to say that, but, but the reality is that maybe some of you are here today and you've, you, you feel that you've been hurt by God or you're angry at Him. And I've heard people ask this question so often, why would God allow that to happen? Why didn't God stop that from happening? And maybe you even feel guilty about feeling this way or thinking this way. But at the same time, you don't understand the answer to the question, why? Why did these things happen? Why was, why was God who is present everywhere, why was he not in that moment protecting you and, and sheltering you and, and helping you? And even with these questions, I want you to know that you are invited. Maybe you've walked away from God. Maybe you're not even in the room today and you're watching this later. You've walked away and you're like, I'll, I'll listen to one more sermon. Maybe you've had moral failures. Maybe your past or your present is filled with stuff and struggles and you can't forgive yourself for those things and you wrestle with whether God will forgive you because you can't forgive you. And so because you can't do it, you just assume that God can't. Maybe you're filled with shame. Shame that's crippling you. Shame that robs you of your joy. A shame that's destroying your sense of self-worth. And I say to you today that you are invited. Maybe you've hit rock bottom. Everything has just kind of fallen out from under you. You've had a file for bankruptcy. You've unexpectedly lost your job. When things went wrong, you were at the bottom of your life and you just considered ending it all. You thought of suicide. You're like, this is it. I just can't ha handle it anymore. Maybe you've cursed God. You've told him off. committed adultery maybe you're just riddled and riddled with addictions whether it's meds illegal drugs pornography sex whatever it might be and you are just 
filled with these addictions and you see absolutely no hope for yourself. You are invited. Jesus doesn't reject people whom others have rejected. For those of us who feel that we've been rejected by the church, script, or we've had scripture used against us to condemn us rather than to bring healing, please know that that was not Christ. That Jesus is inviting you in. Jesus wants to heal you and restore you. The role of the church is not to judge, but to invite. And you need to understand that as the church, we are people. People will get it wrong. But just because we get it wrong does not mean that Christ does not want you and that Christ has rejected you. The beautiful thing is that the Bible tells us that we serve a Father who is good. Some of you may remember the story. Jesus tells this parable of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son, he treats his dad as if his dad's already dead. He's like, give me my inheritance. I know you're still alive, but give me my inheritance. I'm treating you as if you're already dead. I want nothing to do with you. I'm going out, taking what is mine, and I'm going to use it however I want. And the son goes out, and he squanders everything. And, and finally, he finds himself at the bottom of life. There's just nothing that that nothing good happening in his life and he comes to the conclusion he's he's working this through in his head and he decides you know what I am better off as a slave to my father than in the condition I'm already in so he decides here's what I'm gonna do I'm gonna go back to my father as a slave I'm gonna make myself available to him to serve and to live as a slave But if you know the story of the parable father's been waiting for the son to come back and when the father sees the son he doesn't see a slave he sees a son and he opens his arms and he runs to his son you are invited if you're here today and you have experienced the pain of rejection in the church can I just tell you that it was not Jesus? Jesus will heal you. He will restore you. And he's welcomed you in. Our Father's a good Father. A loving Father. And the more you learn about him, the more you're going to see that. So I want to pray for us today. That we would experience that love and that goodness and that it would bring healing to our lives. Father, thank you so much. You do not reject us. Jesus, thank you so much that we are your children. And regardless of our sins, that you haven't turned away from us. You see us, not our sin. This story of this woman is such a beautiful expression of the healing that can take place. So Lord, as broken people, as a broken church, we stand before you today in gratitude. Forgive us when we have not extended the same to others. 
And I pray that we would be a church that truly represents the bride of Christ. Thank you for inviting us in. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing.